You've heard of BetaShares. You've probably seen the logo on our podcast. You might even be among their 1 million investors. So you can imagine that I'm delighted to say BetaShares is the official ETF partner of the Australian Finance Podcast. With nearly 100 exchange-traded funds, you can go to betashares.com.au and immerse yourself in ETFs and unique insights covering all of the sectors, themes, core and satellite positions you could want. Think cybersecurity through the Hack ETF, robotics and AI with the RBTZ ETF, and uranium with the URNM ETF. The list goes on. To explore the BetaShares ETF range, visit betashares.com.au, read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website, and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. Is there a Spotify wrapped for investing? If you want to invest in shares or ETFs, our friends at Perla are more than one step ahead of the curve. On average, people who use Perla invest $1,750 every month. That's what we want to see, proper dollar cost averaging. With automated investing tools making your life simple, Perla investors have well and truly mastered the art of investing small bits lots of times. So if you're ready to start growing your net worth in 2024, follow the link in your Spotify or Apple podcast player right now to discover how you can get started today. Welcome to the Australian Finance Podcast. I'm Kate Campbell. And I'm Owen Rusk. And we're here to give you the tools and knowledge to invest both your time and money better. If you're new, feel free to jump in with our Starter Pack series that aired in early 2022 or our Shares or ETF mini series. We've got plenty to share with you in today's episode, but if you want to catch us on socials, head to Rusk Australia on Insta and Twitter. I'm also found at Kate Campbell AUS on Insta. And I'm Owen Rusk AU on Insta. Just beware of the fake accounts. We'll never DM you about trading strategies or crypto. And if it sounds a bit weird, it's probably not us. And just one final heads up before we get into the show. This podcast contains general financial information only. Amy Lenardi, welcome onto the Australian Finance Podcast today. Hello. I'm so excited to be here as always. I've brought you over from our property podcast for this <laughs> dragged <episode>. me over. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if any listeners don't know, we do have a property podcast, the Australian Property Podcast, linked in the show notes, which Amy is one of the hosts of, and you're also a buyer's agent. I am. So, fair to say I am very qualified to talk about property. And just in case you're listening to this and you're saying, what is a buyer's agent? Never heard of that before because a lot of people haven't. My job is to help people buy houses. Pretty that's pretty much it. <laughs> but you're the opposite of a real estate agent. Well, I'm the opp- I'm technically actually a real estate agent, but I'm not a selling agent. I don't sell the properties. I help people buy them. So I give them advice. I help them, you know, find the properties, figure out what they're looking for. I negotiate with agents, do all the due diligence. So the more of the advisory side. How many properties have you inspected in your career? Inspected? Yeah. Wow. So I've been involved in over 1,500 purchases. Wow. And obviously, we don't buy every single property we look at. So, over 5,000? Inspections. So, you're a good person to talk to (laughs) about buying a first home and avoiding some of those pitfalls that we might fall into, especially when it's such a big, emotional and expensive purchase for everyone. It is. And it's something that it can be challenging to learn about. It's challenging to find the right resources and know who to listen to because 
everyone has an opinion about property. I'm sure your friends and family have. And sometimes a friend might have bought a property and they're giving you advice, but their situation is totally different to yours. Or maybe they're in a different state or your parents are giving you advice, but they bought a property 30 years ago when the real estate agent was driving them around and they were looking in the local paper. (laughs) So on the Australian Property Podcast, we are there to help educate people and um, to, the purpose of today is to really just kind of break it down into a sequential process. If you're thinking, I want to buy a property sometime soon, but I don't even know where to start. Like, what order do I do everything? And what are the real basics that I need to know? Because um, sometimes you can feel a bit overwhelming and lost at the very beginning. Yeah. And there are a lot of resources online, but it can be confusing to know where to start. And especially as you mentioned, everyone has their own advice, whether they've purchased a property recently or not when it comes to buying a property. And we don't want to make big mistakes, especially with this money that we've saved so hard for. And we're entering into debt that we're going to be paying off for many years to come. So we want to get as much as we can right and learn from other people's mistakes. So I'm sure Amy will share some stories with you today. But Amy, what's the very first step someone should think about if they want to buy a property in 2024? So the first thing that you need to do is understand what you can actually do from a finance perspective. So a lot of people think I've got to go get a loan, but I shouldn't go get a loan until, you know, I'm really ready to buy. So I'm not going to even speak to a mortgage broker or a bank just yet. But I actually, I think that that should be the number one step. And I always recommend going to a mortgage broker. So a mortgage broker is someone who, in most cases, you don't have to pay anything. They actually earn their commissions through the bank or lender that they end up putting you with. And they have access to many, many banks and lenders. Unlike if you go to Commonwealth or Bank Australia or whoever, they can only offer you their particular Mm. products, which may or may not be the best one for you. But the benefit as well of working with a broker at the very beginning, even before you've started saving or you've hit your savings goals, is to say, okay, well, based on my income and my expenses and my current savings and my estimated future savings, what could I actually afford And what would I want to spend if, you know, what I can afford is actually higher than what I'm comfortable with? And then you can start putting some goals in place if you need to change anything, whether that's temporarily increasing your income for a little while, which some people can or can't do, decreasing your debts and liabilities or, um, you know, tapping into alternative uh, resources, for example, parents, looking into government schemes. They'll be able to say to you, hey, you might be eligible for this state or federal government scheme, which could mean that you're closer to your property buying goal than you thought. And I just think it's good to have a goal in place and say, okay, well, this is where I want to end up. Therefore, I have to save this amount per month or Mm. pay off my credit card or do whatever. That's the first thing you should be doing. It's never too early to speak to a broker. I know your fellow host on the property podcast, Chris Bates, who's a mortgage broker, was telling us, I think last year on the podcast, it's never too early really to go and speak to a mortgage broker. And he really likes it when people see him a year or two out from buying a property because they have time to sort of think about strategy. And even though he doesn't earn any money at this point, and you could go to any other broker, it's a chance to work together and think, well, 
how do I need to save and what do I need to do with my spending over the next few years to lead up to purchasing a property? And maybe I think I'm ready now, but after talking to someone, I do want to wait a year because a bigger deposit would help me get more what I wanted. Exactly right. They're not going to sit down with you and do a budget or, you know, comb through all your finances and say, hey, you can, you know, pay for less internet here or get a cheaper rent or whatever. They're not, you know, cash flow people per se, but they will help you to then say, yes, but, you know, income, liabilities, savings, all of these things combined, this is what you could do now. Or if this is where you want to end up, this is how to get there. That's Mm. the, that is just so important at the very, very beginning. And just, you know, make sure you find someone who you feel is the right person for you. I've had home buy- uh, first home buyers before say that they always felt like they were a bit of a burden to their broker or they felt like they were being patronised or mm. explained things in ways they didn't understand and they were too scared to ask questions. You want to find a broker who you feel like is your partner in this whole journey. So, you know, ask for recommendations, referrals and speak to a few people until you find the right fit. Yeah, and especially if you are trying to do it yourself and compare different options online, just being in mind, keeping in mind that a lot of the websites don't include all the lenders. So if you aren't using a broker, you do need to look widely and do oh, research. Oh, exactly. And research is a small part of using a mortgage broker. Yes, they have the knowledge and expertise of all of the different rates and lenders and products and everything, but being able to choose the most appropriate one for you is hard. But then later down the track too, you know, whenever I'm speaking either direct with a bank or with a broker, it's easier for me to communicate with a broker. You know, they don't work just nine to five, call them after hours sometimes, they're a bit easier to catch on the mobile in most cases. Mm. So I just feel like overall the journey and experience with a good broker, put a little asterisk there, they have to be a good broker, um, can sometimes be better than going direct to a bank. And I've had a few clients with have who've had terrible experiences going direct to a bank because they won't fully explained everything. Um, so yeah, my unbiased opinion is go to a broker. Yeah. But a good one. A good one. Wonderful. So once we have spoken to a mortgage broker, we have an idea of what budget we have right now or maybe if we're buying a year out, what budget we're working towards. But let's say we're buying this year, we know what budget we have for the property purchase we want to make this year. What's the next step? So the next step is to start researching what you can actually do with that budget. And the good thing about real estate is that all of this information is free and very accessible. We've got these two main websites in Australia, which I'm sure a lot of people know about, realestate.com.au and Domain. And you can go on there and just, I would say, um, spend time in the sold section, not the for sale section, because first of all, depending on which state you're in, quite often they don't have prices on the for sale section. Mm. But also what a property is advertised for or quoted at isn't necessarily what it's going to sell at. So then you go through the sold section and start, you know, really broad and put in any suburbs that you're even remotely thinking of and types of properties and pop your budget in and, you know, bedroom requirements and just see what's been selling. And if you can't find anything you like in a particular suburb that's sold within your budget in the last six to eight months, what do you reckon that means, Kate? (laughs) It might not exist. It might not exist. Or you've put too many filters on. 
Yeah, perhaps. Um, so maybe your expectations need to change mm. or maybe the type of property that you want in that suburb, it's just they just don't have those type of properties. Yeah. So then you start, you know, saying, okay, well, where else can I look? It might lead you to researching other suburbs, looking at alternatives. You might get to the point after all of that and saying, well, nothing that I can afford I actually want. I wouldn't live in that area or that type of property. You may at that point consider still buying a property and keeping it as an investment, rent vesting, or you might decide, well, now is not the right time to for me to buy because the only reason I'm going to be buying is to just get something. Mm. That's not a great reason to buy. So you might sit back, go back to the broker and say, well, you know, how can I change this if you can? And then reassess at that point. There is no rush when it comes to buying a property. Do you have clients that come to you thinking they love this area, but they really want to buy a house. And then after they've spoken to you and started looking at the data, they realize, well, maybe they're going to have to start with a flat in that area or an apartment. Yeah. So I always give people a lot of, I call it homework, pardon the pun, um, when they, <laughs> Amy. when they, it's funny, I called it that for years and someone's like, I get it. I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> but I give them a lot of homework to do at the start because it's so much more empowering and easier I find when people come to their own conclusions rather than me just saying, hey, you can't do that yep. or you can't afford that. So I say to them, okay, well, put down all of your parameters, your budget, your non-negotiables, your suburbs, and send me, you know, eight to 10 links of properties that have sold in those areas for your price that you would consider. And then they might come back to me themselves and say, okay, well, we've realized that that's not going to work. Yeah. And then I'll, I, we start, to, we, you know, we have a lot of chats and a lot of Zooms at the start to figure out what the priorities are. Is it the size of the property or the location? Because if your budget is fixed, which most people's are, you have to make some kind of decision between the two. And if you've got four people, then a one bedroom flat is just not Well, sometimes cut it. it's obvious, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember like when you've come on the podcast in the past, you've spoken about really working out early on what are your non-negotiables and mm. having as few of those as possible makes your search a lot easier. It does. It does. And sometimes I'll have clients come to me and they'll have a list of, you know, 15 things that are non-negotiable. And that's why, again, I get them to do the homework because they say, okay, if you can find me eight links and they tick every single non-negotiable box, you can have all of these non-negotiables. But if you keep sending me stuff and you say, okay, well, this would have been perfect if. Yeah. If it was in a different street, if it was in the close closer to the station, if it had an extra bedroom, they don't count. So it means you do need to consider what you're willing to compromise. The non-negotiables should be so strict that you wouldn't even look at that property if it didn't have those key aspects. Mm. So non-negotiables, the most common ones I have with clients are number of bedrooms, sometimes number of bathrooms, sometimes whether it has off-street parking or not, distance to the train station, really those big fundamental things. But yeah. I've got another client right now and one of their non-negotiables is they just want a nice outlook from the master bedroom, hmm. whether it's, you know, on the second story looking at a tree, just not, you know, down on the ground floor looking at a fence. Yeah. And that's important to them and that's totally fine because they've been able to send me enough examples to say this is... It exists. It exists. Yeah. I remember when I was looking for my place a few years ago, one of my non-negotiables was close to public transport as someone that doesn't have a car. So yeah. that was really important. There was lots of options nearby, which I was able to find, but I was in an area where a lot of that existed. Mm. Um, and also 
for safety for me, um, not living on the ground floor looking straight at the street because mm-hmm. otherwise you wouldn't be able to keep your curtains open. So yeah. things like that where if there was no fence, yeah. that was sort of two important things and I was more flexible about most other bits. And I play devil's advocate all the time when I'm speaking to people and we, you know, they're saying, but I just really want something a bit bigger or I'm not willing to do that amount of renovations or whatever it is, but I really want to be close to public transport. And I say, okay, well, would you consider a short drive to the closest station or getting a scooter or jumping on the bus or something that meant you could live an extra five or 10 minutes away from a station, but then you can get your dream home. And in some cases they sit down and then they think, yeah, well, I actually don't really walk anywhere now anyway. I'm just Mm. thinking this is what I'd like to do, but there's plenty of parking around that station. I'll just jump in the car. Yeah. And, you know, it's workshopping those options until you get to the point where you say, okay, well, this is what I can afford and these are the types of properties and locations that I do want to live in. Yeah, and it's probably spending a bit of time thinking about what your lifestyle is right now because you might be dreaming of a future you with a completely different lifestyle and end up with a completely wrong property. That is so common and it's so hard to predict. It's actually impossible to know what your life is going to look like in five years, seven years, Mm. ten years. Imagine Think about what your life looked like seven years ago. Very different. Very different. Same. (laughs) (laughs) So it is trying to find that happy medium of saying, what do I want now versus what do I want in the future? It can be really hard to know the answer Mm. and no one can tell you this. Um, But yeah, designing, buying a property for a life that you don't yet yet have and maybe you will never have, that can be just as risky as buying something for too much of the short term. But a five, a circa five-ish year, five to seven-ish year plan is a good idea. Yeah. Don't buy a property that you think you're going to outgrow or not live in for more than a year or two. Mm. And then planning for 10 to 15 years. For a lot of younger people, that's not practical. If you're 45 plus, I've just ch- plucked that number out of nowhere, <laughs> by the way. But if you're older, you have a bit more, pre- a little bit more predictability in your yeah. life. Yeah. Okay. So we're designing our property brief thinking five to seven years out if we can, thinking ahead a little bit. We're looking at, well, what suburbs might we like? What are our non-negotiables? What things might we like? And then we're looking at the sold tab to see, does that exist at all? And if not, maybe we have to have a bit of a rethink. Yeah. So we call this your research phase. You do as much as you can before you get to the point where you actually go and get your pre-approval and you steer it, seriously start going out shopping for properties. But during that research phase, feel free to go to inspections. But when you go to them, just say to the agent, I'm just in my research phase. You don't have to call me on Monday to see if I want to buy the property. I'm not ready. They'll appreciate that, by the way. Yeah, but go saves to, them time. Yeah, this can help you figure out what, you, what you're actually wanting and what you're prioritising. You might have in your head, I'm happy to do some renovations, but then when you start going out to these houses, you might think, nah, I couldn't live in a place like this even for a little while. It will help you reframe your strategy. The more of this you can do at the start, the better, especially if you start to then explore suburbs which you don't have a lot of familiarity with. Sometimes I will have clients who say, okay, well, I'd consider this suburb if the right property came up. I say, great, we'll include it. And then I find them something great there and they're like, I love the house, but I just don't know the area enough yet. You do that now. You do yeah. that beforehand. Go so on the that weekend, you don't have a coffee. Yes, go to spend as many spend as much time there as possible, walking around, do your local grocery shopping there for a little bit, go out to the cafes and restaurants, look at the demographics, catch the train to work from there, drive around at different times of the day. So that if something does come up that's great, you don't have that hesitancy. 
because then you could regret that later once you do get to know the area and you're like, damn, that was the one that got away. So the more research you can do at the start, because the whole point of this is to get to a point where you have a really clear and defined property brief, which is your budget. This is the maximum amount that you're prepared to pay for the perfect property. Think of it like that. Um, Your locations, so your preferred locations on your maybe locations, but you'd still definitely consider the maybe locations for the right property. And then your property characteristics, which is your non-negotiables and your bonuses. And that could encapsulate anything from number of bedrooms, you know, lo- uh, proximity within the suburb, renovation quality, anything that's important to you. You can have a bonus list of 200 things if you want, but the non-negotiable list is really the most important one. Yeah. And that's your property brief. And then you do that reality check, like we spoke about before. You go into the sold section, make sure they exist, not just one, not two. Yeah. <laughs> Ideally, you're looking for on average one a month that is sold that ticks the boxes. So, in the last 12 months, is that? I would go back probably not 12 months because the market changes, you know, over time. I try to stick to six to eight months. So, finding if you can find eight to to 10 sold example, that's great. Six to eight is okay. Eight being probably the sweet spot. Mm -hmm. Anything less than six might mean your parameters are being a bit strict. The hardest part about this, I would say, is factoring in like market movement. Mm. For example, what I mean is uh, if you go back of six months worth of sales, the market might have been lower six months ago or higher. But unless you do a bit of research and know what's been happening, you're not going to know that. So you might be benchmarking against things that aren't realistic. Mm. So I wish there was an easy way to explain like how to overcome this, but it really is like the more time you spend in that sold section, you might clearly identify a few few trends and say, oh, wow, these two bedroom apartments in that suburb used to sell for circa this amount and now they're selling for circa this amount. That'll tell you whether that's gone up or down in that area. It sometimes is clear, sometimes it's less clear. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) As an advocate, though, I'm out there, I'm buying properties every week. I'm out there on the ground talking to agents, going to auctions, inspections. So I know. But as a buyer, it's challenging um, for you to know that. Again, the more research you do, but the more like getting out there, going to inspections, speaking to agents, ask agents about their opinion on the current market versus six months ago. And if you've got 10 people telling you the same thing, it's probably the truth. All right. Well, that leads us to the next step of connecting with real estate agents. Yes. Although before you start doing that, I would say go and once you start officially being ready, and what I mean by that is two things, being emotionally ready, (laughs) having done your research, know that you're ready to buy and you're on the same page as your partner. Very important. Doesn't always happen. And, be, and the second part is being financially ready. And being financially ready is then going back to your broker or your lender, your bank, and getting a pre-approval. Yeah. I think that's really important. Some bank, some le- uh, mortgage brokers say, don't worry about a pre-approval. You know, you don't need one. I always recommend one just to be, you know, extra safe and have peace of mind. A pre-approval is essentially that bank or lender saying, we're happy to lend you this amount of money provided you meet these conditions and they will have assessed and you need a fully assessed pre-approval, not one that just is like a computer saying, yes, this might be okay, it might not. Fully assessed pre-approval is the best thing that you can have. 
Yeah, it was interesting when I was at that stage, I did say what properties would you be wary of? And they had sort of listed like those small apartments in the city that had a very small floor space and a few things like that. So just finding out what your lender's approach is and what they like pre-approving. Yeah, exactly. So especially if you're buying um, a property that, yeah, might not be it might not be the norm or what I mean by that. Maybe it's not residentially zoned or maybe it is like a teeny tiny one bedroom property or something that just doesn't have broad market appeal. Your lender might have restrictions on how much they're willing to give you for that property mm. as a loan, non-strata titles, for example, here in Melbourne. So speak to your broker and say, are there any restrictions or any types of properties that I shouldn't be looking at um, and also any other conditions that I need? to meet. And, you know, a pre-approval, they're pretty quick to get. Could be a couple of days, could be a couple of weeks. Once you've got that in place, you're technically officially ready. And then you can go out there and start doing all of this proper searching, really be proactive about it. You know, the more you get out there, the better. Prioritize it every weekend. And then you can start approaching agents and say, well, this is my brief. Not only, you know, speaking to the inspections, but writing down a list of all the agents in the area that sell properties that you're interested in and calling them, emailing them. It's a heap of work. No one does it. (laughs) Not many people do it. But as buyers agents, we do this every day. And that's the reason why we buy for clients within usually six to eight weeks on average. And we get, you know, 30% of our properties are off market which means properties that aren't on the internet because we're calling, speaking to them, nagging them in a nice way, being front of their mind. But a lot of people don't do that. Mm. And that gives you the opportunity to be the first person to look at a property that hasn't gone on the market yet? Yeah, in many cases, yes. So sometimes we look at an off-market property and we're the first person or sometimes the only person. Yeah. But you need to ha- establish, you know, first of all, a connection with the agent And you need to just demonstrate that you're a genuine and motivated buyer. If you're saying things to the agent like, hey, I'm, you know, this is what I'm looking for, but I'm not in any kind of rush. I'm not desperate. Do you reckon the agent's going to call you first versus, you know, the other person that's like, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to buy something. Is there a fine line there? Because I know a lot of people are worried how much they tell the agent because they don't want the agent to be able to extract too much value out of them. Well, if you said to them, (laughs) if you said to the agent, I am desperate to buy a house. I need to buy within a week. I'll buy anything. That's different to say, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to buy the right, I'm ready to buy the right property when it comes up versus then on the other end of the spectrum, I'm not in a rush. I'm not that motivated. You know, we'll see what happens. At the end of the day, especially when we're in a market where agents are busy, they're going to prioritise the buyers who they think they're going to achieve a sale with. Yeah. So you need to give them enough that they think you're worth following up with. Yes. Okay. And some buyers, you know, and I've got a lot of friends who are agents. Um, I know a lot of real estate agents and I know that agents talk about buyers and then some buyers can create a bad reputation for themselves as being a time waster mm. or being unmotivated or whatever it is. And they're not going to get the first call when there's something off market or a, an opportunity for them. It think, is hard. Do you think it makes it easier for you talking to agents because you've got a relationship? They know that when you talk to them, you have someone that is ready to buy. Absolutely. So all of the um, agents I deal with, and especially because I've been in the industry for over a decade now, 
got a reputation of being someone who has buyers who are educated, ready to buy, and I'm not there to play games. There's some advocates I know are out there who say, you know, the agent is evil, I'm here to protect you. That's not the case. You know, they know that I'm going to work with them and I can speak to them on a bit more frank level, kind of agent to agent. So, yes, we absolutely get more traction and cut through with real estate agents. And at the start too, you know, I had a buyer come to me recently and said, you know, we're a first home buyer and we missed out on this property we love because we just didn't trust the agent when they said they had an offer that was higher than us. And it turned out they did and they sold it to that other person. We just weren't sure. Mm. So that's a really common thing to have a bit of uncertainty about. Um, but again, the more you educate yourself and learn about, well, what are the processes? You know, how do properties get sold? What's a private sale? What's an auction? Unless you teach yourself about these things, you're going to learn through potentially making mistakes. Mm. So once we have started connecting with real estate agents, we we know our area, we know what we want exists. We've been to some open homes, and we've seen something on the weekend and we've told the agent we want to go back for a second inspection. What should we be thinking about then? So when you're looking at properties, the main thing you really need to be looking at, because everyone says, should I be testing PowerPoints? What what should I be doing? (laughs) What should I be doing in inspection? I'm like, that is the least of your concerns. (laughs) The main thing, first of all, is to figure out, well, does this property meet my brief? Yeah. You'd be surprised how many people look at a property. I said, but you, that's not what you said you want. It doesn't meet your non-negotiables. Um, and then it's also I've I've got a free list of 100 things to look out for an inspection. That is that is more than you need to look out for, by the way. It's just 100 things you could yep. look out for. <laughs> so you can go and download that just to get an idea. Um, but, you know, the, the building inspector later on, if you get to that point of getting a building inspection, they're going to be looking at things like, you know, the condition of the property and any leaks or any major problems. So you're really there just to make sure that that aligns with what you're looking for. Um, and then you could consider things like, okay, well, this is kind of near a freeway. Can I hear any noise? How about I close the doors and open the doors? What's, what kind of natural light is this property going to get? It's really dark right now, but it's the morning and it's west-facing. So it's going to get bright later in the day. Like all of these things that you might not think about. Use my inspection list <laughs> if you need to. Um, but then once you've decided, yes, this is a property that I really like and I want to consider moving forward on, you need to get ready straight away for that. Because that property, even if it's going to auction or especially if it's a private sale, you could get a phone call the next day to say, hey, Kate, we're selling this property. You've got 24 hours or you've got six hours you need to be ready. Yeah. Things can move quite fast at that point. Yeah, very much so. Put an offer in on a property on Friday night last week and we had the auction the next morning. Oh, wow. Yeah, on Zoom in the car. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, things can happen very quick. So you never want to be caught by surprise. And most of the due diligence that you can use, as soon as I use the word due diligence, a lot of people think, oh, this is this is effort. Too much work. It's too much work. I just but it's so important. Most of the due diligence you can do is free and you can go home and do it on your couch straight away. That is figuring out how much that property is worth. Easier said than done. Pete and I did a full episode on how to appraise a property on the Australian Property Podcast. Go and listen to that. You can do that on the couch. You can do the local checks, you know, drive around the area, call council. Lots of things you can do that are free and easy and cheap straight away. Do that. 
you might then get your contract reviewed straight away. Some solicitors and conveyances will charge you for that, some won't. Ours that we use don't, so we get that done straight away. And then we decide if we want to get a building inspection, whether we're making our office subject to that or getting it up front, but we get ready. And a very common mistake I see is people just missing out on a property because they aren't ready because they procrastinated. Yeah. And that just fe- that's, a, that's a terrible feeling to have. Mm. When you're doing the inspection, do you usually take photos So you, when you're going back that evening to do the research and make sure you know what offer you want to put in, you can refer back to things like that? I take videos. Yeah, yeah I take videos and then sometimes I'll upload them to Vimeo, otherwise my phone would be full just to have on my own little Vimeo account. But videos are great because, you know, you can just pause it rather than taking a thousand photos. Just make sure you ask the real estate agent's permission for that. That's definitely a good good piece of advice. Yeah. And just looking for those big things that could be wrong when you're inspecting the property. Like the fact that one blind doesn't work is probably (laughs) not the deal breaker there. Yeah. Things like heating and cooling. What does it have? I I said to people, "What what did it have? I don't know. I wasn't looking at that. I was looking at the Nice taps in the bathroom. Um, but, yeah, really the, the whole point of the inspection is to make sure that it's a property you're happy to buy and you can go into the nitty-gritty later on. But remember, a property inspection, you could be there for 15 to 30 minutes and you might not have a chance to see that property again. Like I've tried on pants for longer than that before <laughs> and you have to make a big decision. Yeah. So being really focused and you know knowing what you're looking at when you get there just in case you don't have a chance to see it again. Yeah. Would you be keeping a, a little list of anything like, oh, maybe the carpet has to be replaced because it's really bad and oh, maybe I'd have to do a kitchen renovation because that would factor into how much you can pay for the property because you have to account for other costs that you might yeah. have to pay quite early on if it's not fully livable? Definitely. So this is where you get to the point where you say, okay, well, what are the things that I need to do straight away And there's a difference between need and want, by the way. You might need to replace that carpet because it's just filthy or it's full of fleas or it's just past its day versus I'd I'd really like to replace the carpet, but I don't have to because, you know, you don't want to then decrease your budget so far factoring in all of these wants. Because carpet, fully replacing a house worth of carpet is probably quite a bit of money, I imagine. Well, it depends on the quality of the carpet you want. It can be really cheap. I've done it for really cheap before in investment properties. But if you decrease your budget so much to factor in all of these desirable works, you might put yourself out of the running to be competitive for that property. Mm. And I say to people, okay, well, if it was the difference between getting it or not and not having new carpet for a couple of years Mm. or so, You've got to put it all into perspective to figure out your priorities. One of the other really hard things about buying a property that needs some work is knowing how much things are going to cost. And if you've never asked for a quote for anything, like I obviously do not know how much carpet costs. (laughs) (laughs) I just am putting up with my stained carpet (laughs) I got when I purchased it. Yeah, and, you know, you don't want to overestimate it, you don't want to underestimate it, but in many cases it can be really hard, if not impossible, to get a quote for that property especially if it's going to sell really quickly or companies are saying, well, you've got to pay us for the quote because you haven't even bought it yet, so we might not get the work. Um, but Or even asking friends or family. I, I'm a member of multiple Facebook groups where people always post, hey, how much would it cost? Has anyone done something like this recently and how much does it cost? And that's all of this information is really, really helpful. Yeah. 
Okay, so we've done our <laughs> inspection. We've looked at your 100 item checklist that people can download in the show notes for free. What about the next step, putting in an offer? Oh my gosh, this is such a hard step. They're all they're all hard steps, but very doable if you educate yourself. But putting in an offer for a property is going to be really dependent on which state you live in, whether it's a private sale, you know, whether it's going to auction and maybe you're thinking about putting in an offer prior, et cetera, et cetera. So you've really got to understand, and this is where you work with the real estate agent to say, what is the what is the process and what is the timeframes? You know, is this property ready to be purchased now? Does it have a contract? Can I put an offer in, you know, tomorrow if I wanted to? Because sometimes they might say, well, no, we're not taking offers for another two weeks. Yeah. Or they might say the contract's not ready yet, so you can't do anything anyway. Mm. What's their campaign period? How many more people do they want through the house? Yeah, sometimes a vendor will say, I'm not accepting offers until I have at least, you know, a couple of Saturday inspections. So you've got to understand timeframes. You've got to understand the process. What I mean by that is, How are they taking offers? You know, do you have to give it on a contract? Is it, you know, a verbal offer and then they'll call other people around? Like what's the process? And then once they get an offer, which the vendor's happy with, whether that's you giving it or someone else giving it, what then happens? Do they call everyone else around and say, hey, you've got one shot to put an offer in? Do they go backwards and forwards? Do they do a little auction? There are so many ways they can do it and there are no this is quite horrifying, but with a private sale, there's no rules around this. Every agent and every agency can have a different way they handle offers. Mm. So the only way for you to know that is by having asking as many questions as you can to that agent until you know, okay, this is this is what's going to happen. This is how an offer yeah. is going to be handled. And I guess it's a very human process because the agent's dealing with a seller on the other side. So the seller... The agent might be fine and ready to do everything, but the seller might not be decided on whether they want to sell that day or want to wait a week. Yeah, so a really a good real estate agent will have their vendor, you know, they'll, they'll be telling their vendor what to do yeah. rather than the vendor telling the agent what to do. Yeah. But I have had situations as well where the agent has said, oh, we'll, we'll wait and see. And I said, well, that's not going to work for me. <laughs> it's very rare that that happens, by the way. And in which case I say to, to, to be able to make a decision on what I want to do, I actually need to know what you're going to do. Yeah. And in most cases I can get to a point where they say, okay, well, this is what we can do. This is what we will do. Okay. So being really upfront with the agent saying, can you tell me what the process is once I put in an offer? Yes. And that's a question you can just ask. Absolutely. You need to ask that. So you say, okay, well, when are you taking offers? How are you taking offers? And if you get an acceptable offer, how are you going to handle that offer with other buyers? and competition. One of the extra complexities with a private sale too is, Kate, your offer might be, you know, $500,000 subject to finance. Another offer might be $480,000 not subject to finance. And the vendor might still take the 480 because there's less risk. Some vendors might say, I'm willing to take the risk of 20 grand. So you've got to work with the agent to figure mm-hmm. out, you know, how are they going to handle it? There's different terms and conditions. And What about building and pest? Does that impact how competitive your offer could be? The short answer is the less conditions in an offer, the more competitive and the stronger it is. But there's lots of places around the country, especially like not so much in Melbourne because being unconditional is very powerful. But, you know, in a lot of regional places um, and interstate, 
being subject to finance and building inspection is just super, super common. And most people do it. Okay. So that's yeah. when you speak to the agent and say, well, you know, how much extra advantage is it going to give me to do it up front? They might say, oh, look, everyone else is subject to a building inspection. It's not going to harm your offer. And then you make a judgment call. I had a story I heard from a family friend recently. They were selling a property and they received an offer from a potential buyer. And the offer came with a letter saying they were a family and they really wanted this property for all these reasons. And um, it was a good offer. So I think they accepted it. But also the letter was quite nice and it helped add a bit of flavor to the offer. Go for it. There's no reason to not do it. I would say in most cases, it's not going to give you an edge if someone else is going to pay quite a bit more or has much better terms. Yeah. I've had it work a couple of times in the last 10 years, especially when that vendor was really emotional about the home. Um, had one case, a situation where the other buyer was also just being really difficult and was making her really upset and the agent said, you know, this is just really hard and we bought it for five grand less than someone else. Mm because she wanted it to go to my family. Mm. So that helped, but feel free to do it if you want to. You could just have a template that you just send yeah. to everyone. Make sure you change the address on each one that you send. <laughs> it's like a cover letter. Yeah. Is there anything else that you can do to make your offer more competitive? The main thing is price, Yeah, <laughs> of course, but, but terms also absolutely come into play. So asking what the vendor wants for settlement, if yeah. they want more or less time? Yeah, they, they might want a really short settlement. So a settlement is the time when you actually take the keys and, you know, pay all of the money. So, you know, the minimum is quite often, you know, it's 30 days that we do. Um, but I've had settlements up to seven months before. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's what the, we really wanted the property. My clients weren't in a rush. That's what the vendors wanted. And if we didn't give them that, they might have just waited until later in the year. And we didn't want to take that risk. Um, so working with the the agent to say, is there anything, for example, settlement that could make my offer more compelling? And then without getting too complicated, because I know this is supposed to be a base 101 episode, but I've done a lot of creative things in the past. Like I've had a, a floating settlement where the vendor had the exclusive right to bring it forward if they wanted to. I've had situations where we lease the property back to the vendor afterwards for a few months so they can go buy something else. Yeah. So, you know, you can get creative with terms. But the main ones are price. And then, you know, if you cannot have subject to finance, big bonus. And if you cannot have subject to building inspection, that's a bonus too. So we call that an unconditional offer where it's just price and settlement. And there's no extra conditions or terms. Perfect. And if they come back with a, if I say 700 and they say, I have an offer for 750, does it just come back to looking at our brief, looking what we think the property's worth and whether we have the budget for it? Well, this is the, yeah, absolutely. So all of your research will help you then make a decision on, okay, well, if they do have another offer at that level and they're going to sell it at that level, if I don't come up on price, first of all, is it worth it? Is it worth it to me as well? You know, how many other properties have sold that? that price or above that, that suit me more, et cetera. So the more research you've done beforehand, the more confidence you'll have making that decision. If you haven't done any of that beforehand, then it's going to be really hard and you might second guess yourself and that decision making will be really challenging. Is there anything else we need to add in the property buying process for beginners? Well, there's so many things. <laughs> I mean, in our initial you- <laughs> episode, yeah. <laughs> We've got a whole podcast on property, so. We've got a whole, oh yeah. my gosh, there's look, there's just so many variables. Everyone's situation is different. Even if your best friend bought a property last month, 
you know, it, it was from a different agent, maybe a different price point. Maybe that agency had a different process. Like it's it's a very uh, unique individual journey for everyone. So just make sure you're asking all of the questions, you know, to as many people as possible. Have a good team around you, your mortgage broker, um, you know, figuring out who you're going to use for your legal stuff at the start, maybe having a few building inspectors. You've got recommendations for maybe a buyer's agent if you're listening to this and thinking, oh, my gosh, I just need that extra bit of professional help. And having that um, supportive extended network too around you of people who are, you know, Agreeing, yeah, this is a this is a great strategy. Not people saying, "Don't buy now." The market's terrible because they don't know, they don't know when the right time is to buy. So that's a really important thing: having the right team around you, getting your team right, talking to a broker, getting pre-approval, getting our property brief created, and then giving it a reality check using domain and realestate.com. Thinking about going to inspections and open homes so we get a good idea and start connecting with real estate agents and using Amy's checklist yeah. in the show notes <laughs> and then thinking about putting in an offer and what that looks like and making sure we know local building and pest people and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. So go and you know do your research, listen to the Australian Property Podcast, download my checklist. I have a course up for first home buyers. Victorian home buyers only, sorry, at this stage, which is the firsthomeguidebook.com.au. Knowledge is power. And if you're listening to this podcast, that's a good first step. <laughs> yeah. And that's probably a good point to end on, Amy, because everything in property is quite state and location dependent. So, so there's much. different schemes. That's why you want to talk to a broker who knows your area. Correct. Wonderful. Well, Amy, thank you so much for joining me in this episode. We have plenty of property-related resources in the show notes that people can check out because it's all about education, as you said. But thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for the invite, Kate. See you next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Australian Finance Podcast. We hope you learned something new and were able to take one thing away from this episode. If you're keen to learn more, head on over to Rask Education and take one of our free money and investing courses. You could even become a Rask Core member for less than your Netflix subscription each month. And don't forget to subscribe for new episodes in your inbox every week. Plus, if you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and send any questions our way via the link in the description. And before we go on, did this podcast contain personal financial advice just for me? Absolutely not, Kate. Our podcast actually contains general financial information only. What that means is the information does not take into account your financial needs, goals, objectives, or even your situation. So because of that, it's important that you consider if the information is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on it. If that all sounds a bit confusing or you're still working out what your needs are, it's a great idea to consult a licensed and trusted financial planner. And don't forget to do your own research. Are you thinking about starting your wealth creating journey, but not sure where to put your hard earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107.
For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.